0: We're back at the amazing book of Daniel here, unshakable That's what Daniel was, and that's what we learned to be in the book of Daniel. And now we're entering into the second half of the book of Daniel. Uh, We've been going through chapters 1 through 6, one chapter per week, and now we're at chapter 7 today. The first half of the book of Daniel is filled with astounding stories, Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and and the, the three men in the fiery furnace, and Daniel in the lion's den that we just talked about last week. The second half of the book of Daniel is filled with astounding visions and dreams and prophecies. Uh, the, the first half of the book of Daniel is, filled, is all about God's work in the past. The second half of the book of Daniel is all about God's work in the future. So we're about to enter the prophecy portion of Daniel, and it's difficult to grasp at times, I've got to admit to you. And some, if you're like me, uh, have a tendency to skip some of these uh, portions, skip some of this part. But that would be a big mistake. It would be a big mistake to skip the second half of the book of Daniel. One commentary I read starts off the, this chapter, Daniel chapter 7, with this witty illustration. He said, this, he said, if before marriage, and here I speak to the males, if before marriage you imagine you have begun to understand the female, you are incredibly naive. If after marriage you think you can divine the female, you are clearly deluded. If after years of happily married life you dream that at last you can fathom the female persona, you're utterly hopeless. And yet, none of that kept you from marriage. And isn't that true? And here's what he said. Neither should the mysteries of Daniel chapter 7 through 12 keep you from plowing on through this book. (laughs) And, you know, the the reason that prophecy is so important for us to study, and it is amazing. The reason it is so important, though, is because God's plan for the future, when we have a, a good view of that, it's where we find hope for today. God's plan for the future is where we find hope for today. 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 19 says this, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Speaking of the second coming of Christ. The point here is that the prophecy... Is, is a light that shines in a dark place. Peter is saying that we need to hold on to prophecy. We need to look at prophecy. We need to stare at it because we're living in a dark time. And this is the light at the end of the tunnel. This is the thing that brings us hope. This is the thing that keeps us going through the dark days here and now. So when things are dark and they aren't as they should be, we need to keep in mind that God has a plan, all right? I will admit, though, that my brain doesn't naturally work like some of the things we're going to read when I see these beasts and... Uh, that take funny shapes and they have different different concepts that are coming in. I have to work hard to understand the meaning behind all of this. But when you finally see it come together, it's like a light bulb coming on. And it causes us just to glorify God, to, to say, man, God, you are powerful. And it gives us so much hope for the here and now. So... Let's dive in. The book of Daniel is not in chronological order. We've mentioned that before. So we're going to go back a little bit in time. Let's dig in. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. So remember, this is the king that saw the handwriting on the wall in his drunken state. So here we are in the first year of that king Belshazzar, who was the last king of Babylon. Daniel is in his sixties or his seventies, and he goes to sleep, and in that first year of King Belshazzar, and he has a dream, he has a vision. Verse 2 Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. Now winds typically come from one direction at a time. This, Daniel's saying, I saw these winds coming from every direction. And that is symbolic of God's intervention on the earth. God's working. In the New Testament, the the Holy Spirit is likened to the wind. We don't know which way it's coming from. So God is working. And the sea is symbolic of humanity. Several times we see that in Scripture. So the point is here that what Daniel is seeing is that God is moving on the earth. God is moving, and he's, we can't tell which way he's, he's moving, but he's stirring up things here on the earth. And here's what's happening in the sea, or here's what's happening on the earth as Daniel sees it. Verse number three, we're going to go through several verses here. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld until the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth uh, of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, "...which had upon the back of its four wings of a fowl. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns... And behold, there came up among them another little horn before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So I'm gonna stop right here and try to look back and, um, and kind of uh, try to describe what we're seeing here. Now, later we find out, by the way, that this vision that Daniel has troubled him, troubled Daniel, and I can see why, okay? Okay. <laughs> If I, had a, if I was seeing that in my dream, I'd be a little trouble. If you think about it, Daniel probably had a better night's sleep in the lion's den than he did here this night when he had this vision. But here are the four frightful things that he saw. And here's some uh, artist's rendering of that. Hopefully you can kind of see it. There's a winged lion with a, uh, with a man's heart. There's a bear with ribs in his mouth. There's a four-headed, four-winged leopard. And then there's this nondescript beast here at the end that has 10 horns and one dominant horn that comes up, and that little horn has eyes and a mouth on it. Ugly. That is ugly. (laughs) Now let's talk about what these represent, okay? In Daniel's time, this was all future, and he's seeing this, and God's giving him a vision of the future. Um, But we have the benefit of looking back into history and kind of putting the pieces together and seeing how these visions that Daniel saw came together and, uh, and, and already have come to pass. Most of them, that is, because there's still a future piece of this, this prophecy as well. So here's the dominant view by Old Testament scholars as to what each beast represents. They represent a world kingdom or an empire. Number one, the lion. It represents Babylon. And you can fill that out if you're, if you're taking notes there. The lion represents Babylon. Babylon. He, there were sculptured winged wings, it says. And, and, from, and uh, in, in Babylon, during that time, there were sculptures that have been dug up. And you actually see winged lions representing Babylon and representing Nebuchadnezzar, the king. In fact, when you look back, it's actually winged lions are virtually the symbol of Babylon itself. But these wings, the Bible says in the, in, uh, in the verses there had, were plucked, could be referring to Nebuchadnezzar's insanity that God struck him with. This lion is also given a man's heart, which also could, which could be referring to the fact that Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he was converted. From Scripture, we see that he was converted and given a different kind of a heart than other uh, evil kings. Or perhaps it could be picturing the fact that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon was more humane than the other, uh, than the other empires. The bear represents the Medo-Persian empire, the Medes and the Persians. Bears are slower than lions, but often more fierce. The bear is raised on one side, and that may suggest that the one side, the Persians, were more dominant than the other side, the Medes. There are three ribs in the mouth of the bear. He'd already uh, been chewing on his enemy, in other words. And that is probably picturing the conquering that the Medes and the Persians did of Lydia, Egypt and Babylon, great places back in those days. The leopard represents Greece, the next world empire to come along. Leopards are fast, they're agile, and the wings on this leopard suggest even more speed. Now think about this, Greece, when it came under Alexander the Great, conquered uh, over 11,000 miles of territory in just under eight years. Famously, Alexander the Great, he's famous for doing all of this, conquering the known world in his, all in his 20s. Great speed. No other ancient army matched their speed. Uh, the four heads of that leopard represent the division of power once Alexander the Great died. The kingdom was divided and given to his four generals. And then this last beast, this ugly, nondescript beast, it represents Rome. This beast is not like the others. It's no particular animal, and uh, we see that actually Rome uh, assimilates all the other empires into itself, and it's, it, it is its own empire. Uh, but it just wraps up all those other empires into it. Its the visual appearance of this beast uh, makes it more fearsome than the other three, and with. Whatever its, uh, its, its feet, or whatever its teeth couldn't devour, the Bible says its feet crushed. It's a very powerful empire. We know that Rome moved with strength and precision as it systematically moved through the world and just took over and conquered nations. The ten horns on the beast correlate with the ten toes. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream... And we'll see that in just a minute. But Rome eventually ruled the entire world. And that, when, when you see those ten toes and those ten horns, that represents something yet to come in the future. And we'll see that in just a minute. But now you may have noticed and thought about that already, that these four beasts miraculously coincide with the statue that we saw in Nebuchadnezzar's dream several chapters earlier. Babylon, the Medes and Persians, Greece, and Rome. So here's a picture of what that would sort of correlate to. The difference, though, in these two dreams here is that Nebuchadnezzar got man's view. God gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream of this statue with gold and silver and brass and iron and clay in the feet. So, uh, so Nebuchadnezzar gets man's view. We look at empires, we look at uh, world powers right now, and they seem mighty, they seem wealthy, they seem like they have it all. But God gave Daniel God's view of those empires. And to God, they look like beasts. They look like ugly beasts that are just ravaging people. Man's view and God's view. You know, people tell us that things have gotten more civilized over time. I'm not sure about that. You know, I, I remember uh, several years ago, we took that trip to Ukraine to visit our uh, missionaries, Joel and Lorianne Machek there, and they took us to the Ukrainian... Holocaust Museum anybody who's been there uh, it's it's it will stick out in your memory it was less than 100 years ago 19 in 1930s when uh, Joseph Stalin purposely starved over 7 million Ukrainians to death and starving them to death, stealing all their food. And this this whole uh, museum there you can walk through and just see the images of children laying in the street having starved to death and families. That was less than 100 years ago. I won't even mention Adolf Hitler's beastliness. In the 1970s, 1970s, you have Idi Amin committing disgusting atrocities and his genocide across Uganda, ordering the killing of 500,000 people, sledgehammering them to death in their prisons. If you were in the wrong tribe, he would rip your organs, rip the organs out of people's bodies. He was just, uh, just brutal, brutal. Today in North Korea or other nations, what they're doing to people is just indescribable, indescribable what's happening right now. And I have to say, I'm sorry, America, but chopping up babies in their mother's, in mother's wombs, I'm sorry, but that's another Holocaust. And don't tell me that's not beastly. Don't tell me God thinks that's okay. Are the kingdoms of men, when God sees them, are they like beasts? Yes. And they're getting uglier and uglier. And from a human standpoint, they're frightening. Now remember what what this was like for the Jews reading this. The Jew takes it and he re-goes to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel had written this. You You might be a Jew and you're reading this several hundred years after Daniel wrote it. They, were, they would have been captive under these world powers. Maybe they were under the Medes and the Persians, or maybe later they were Jews under the Grecian rule. And they're reading this. And what is God telling to those people as they would read this? God was letting them know that, yes, the nation that's in control of you right now, are, they're beasts. They're beasts and they're evil. They, they are wreaking all kinds of havoc. But hold on. Hold on, you, my people. You who are chewed up and spit out by the world. Hold on, those of you who have been abused and persecuted. Hold on, all those who have been made to fear by these, by these beasts. God is still on the throne. God is still in control. There is, there is nothing that has shaken heaven up. And that is the ultimate message here. Look at verse 9. And this is Daniel's vision. And I behold, and I beheld, till the throne's were cast down and the ancient of days did sit whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool his throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him thousand thousands ministered unto him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him the judgment was set and the books were opened So in Daniel's scene now, in his his vision, the whole scene changes. We move to a courtroom, God's courtroom. And the Ancient of Days takes his seat as the judge. The name Ancient of Days speaks of the God who has always been there from ancient times. Ever since the beginning of time, he has always been there. He was judge, jury, and monarch long before these beasts ever came out of the sea. And they don't frighten him one bit. White garment and white hair represent God's purity and his wisdom. His throne, as it says, is like a fiery flame, which just represents his throne of judgment. Fire represents judgment in Scripture. The wheels that it talks about there represent the uh, universal nature of his judgment. It's all over and it's unstoppable. It's going to happen. So this awesome sight that Daniel is looking up and seeing, he's seeing all of this take place. God is on his throne, the ancient of days there. And then he sees an innumerable innumerable amount of uh, attendance around God's throne, thousands and thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, innumerable. Watching God, staring at God's throne and waiting for God to move, waiting for God to tell him, you tell me, God, what you want me to do. Angels all beside him. You tell me what to do and I'll go immediately and do it. You tell me who to judge and I'll take care of it immediately, God. The sight that Daniel was trying to take in was just so much. The point here is God is not lacking in power or ability. You see all of this? (laughs) It is he is not shaken. The Ancient of Days did sit. He did sit. He was just sitting there. The beasts are ravaging the world but nothing has changed in the courtroom. The judge is calmly sitting. He's waiting for the right moment. I just want to remind us right now that there are times when just that thought alone, just the fact of God sitting on his throne, God sitting can bring a calm sense to our, to our heart, a, a sense of peace. The ancient of days is sitting. He's just sitting. As you know, Mark Thrift, evangelist Mark Thrift a few weeks ago reminded us, what often worries us Causes Jesus to go to sleep. (laughs) Jesus in the boat when the wind was was going and the storms were were going all over the place. Jesus was asleep in the boat. What worries us causes Jesus to go to sleep. So yes, the beast of this world might cause some fear and, and have some earthly power right at this moment. But keep your mind on this. The Jew that might be reading this, or the Christian that might be reading this. The ancient of days is going to hold court very soon. He's already in control. So after this show of power and the Ancient of Days, that, uh, seeing all of this, Daniel returns to talking about the fourth beast that had those ten horns. And actually there was another horn that rose up out of those ten horns and plucked up three of the horns. And this one little powerful horn had eyes and a mouth. Now that's creepy. And, he, and this little horn started to speak. Verse 11, look what happens. I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So Daniel sees this one dominant horn that rises up. It's small, but then it rises on this ugly beast. And this little, this little horn's making a whole big hoopla and make talking big for a little horn. <laughs> then the beast, then the whole beast, that horn and the entire beast was given to the burning flame, it says. It was cast into the fire. We'll find out later that this little loud-mouthed horn represents the Antichrist in the, during the tribulation period. You know, in the book of Revelation, we see that the Antichrist is the beast that will be cast into the lake of fire. Look in Revelation chapter 19 here, verse 19. And I saw the beast, John says, that's the apostle John. In his vision, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies, which is very similar exactly what uh, Daniel's talking about here, gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Verse 20, And the beast was taken, with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. The point here is that Jesus will make quick work. Of the Antichrist. There's no trouble that Jesus is having no problem dealing with this. He's the judge and he's going to take care of all this. And these nations that rise up in the end times against God, these ten nations that will get together and come against him and fight for the very last time, Jesus will make very fast work of them. And that's what we see in the book of Daniel as well. The Antichrist uh, stands no chance. Verse 12, as concerning the rest of the beasts. They had their dominion taken away, those other three, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So Daniel says in his vision that the other three beasts, they have their dominion taken away, but their lives are prolonged for a little while. That seems to represent the fact that those previous three kingdoms will be assimilated into the final Roman kingdom someday that's going to be completely destroyed. Now, how does this whole thing all end after after this battle and they're destroyed And God takes care of them. What happens after that? Well, Daniel sees then what happens next. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Verse 14, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. This is the last page of the last book. This is the end of the story. Here it is. This is how it all ends. We have one like the Son of Man coming. Now, real quick, the word like, like the Son of Man, tells us this was more than just a man. The, son, the, word, the words Son of Man is a title referring to the Messiah. The Messiah. He was a man, but he was more than a man. Jesus used that term, son of man, most often. That was the term he used of himself most often. He, he was a man. He was humble, but he was more than a man. And he was given dominion and glory. That is Jesus. He's given dominion and glory and a kingdom where everyone uh, in eternity will serve and worship him. This is an everlasting kingdom, Daniel said, and it will never be destroyed. Again, who is this son of man that Daniel saw? It's Jesus of Nazareth, who came 2,000 years ago. He is our Savior, the one who died on the cross. Now, interestingly, I want to say this. We know, we know who Daniel is talking about. But the Jews didn't want to accept that it was Jesus. Verse 13, this verse here, if you, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, comes into play, actually, 500 years later when Jesus is on trial uh, before the high priest. I want to show you Matthew chapter 26, verse 63. Let me show you that. Here's Jesus on trial. But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ or the Messiah, the, the Son of God. Verse 64. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That's exactly what Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 just said. He's going to be coming in the, from the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man. Jesus just basically said, that's me. Verse 65. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. This—why did the high priest have such a strong reaction to what Jesus was saying there? Why did he rent, rend his clothes? Because he knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. Jesus was claiming that he was that vision of Daniel chapter seven verse thirteen. He was the Son of Man who would be coming and given that kingdom that would last forever and ever. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of Man. As Christians, we wholeheartedly accept this. Wholeheartedly. Jesus is the Son of Man that Daniel was talking about. Jesus is the King that's coming that's going to sit on the throne forever, that we are going to rule with and reign with. Now at that time, Daniel's time, he couldn't put all of this together quite yet. He was trying to figure this whole thing out. In fact, verse 15 of Daniel chapter 7 tells us his reaction when he woke up from this. Let's look at what it says. I, Daniel was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body <laughs> and the visions of my head troubled me. Again, I can see why he had a physical response to this dream. Um, the other night, my wife woke up in the middle of the night, startled, jumped, and she told me, I was having a dream and, that I was trying to rescue you from a piece of granite falling on you. All right. <laughs> I appreciated her trying to save me. That was really nice of her. But it gave her that physical response, that a dream that just... Uh, Just broke her from her sleep. And Daniel says, I felt it in my body, in the midst of my body, this dream. And after Daniel felt that, he wanted to know, what is God saying through this dream? But interestingly, he couldn't interpret it all himself. Verse 16, I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made me know the interpretation of the things. It's interesting to me how Daniel, the interpreter, needed someone else to help him interpret. Apparently, it was probably another one of God's men that was nearby him. And I just want to just mention that this is a reminder that it was God and not Daniel the whole time who has been interpreting the dreams. Daniel would have no power to be able to interpret James unless God had given it to him. And this time, God chose not to give the interpretation to Daniel, but to give it to somebody else. So his friend gives him the interpretation. But I want you to see and notice how short this uh, interpretation is in comparison to this detailed, elaborate dream that Daniel just had. Verse 17. Here's what he says. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. Verse 18. But the saints, that is the believers, of the Most High, shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. That's it. (laughs) Now this sounds like one of those no-nonsense, straight-to-the-point kind of guys, you know. Uh, But this unnamed dream interpreter guy, he's right. He's right. Bottom line, beasts are coming out of the earth. There's going to be a bunch of kings. But the saints will prevail in the end. The end. (laughs) That's it. That's what's really important. That's all you really need to know. And I I think that's why God put this in here. I think that's what God wants us as people who read it to focus on. It's almost like God is reminding us, do not focus on the beasts. Don't get so focused on how they look and all the little pieces. Those are, there's little nuggets of truth of what's coming, but focus on the victory in the end once Babylon falls, then there's going to be another one, Persians. Then once the Persians fall, there's going to be another one, the, Greece, the Greeks. Then, then after them comes Rome. Life is one beast after another. But God, God in the end, and God and his saints will take the kingdom. And as Christians, I just want to say this, we still fight the beasts every day. But we don't fight for victory. We fight from a position of victory. We already know the end is settled. We already know what team we're on. So every battle that we come into, we already know we've won. And that's all true, but, but Daniel wants some more detail. I, that's, a good, that's a good word, brother, but I need some more about this dream, especially about that final ugly beast. So that's what he asked for. Verse 19, then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron, and his nails of brass, which devoured, breaking pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet. Verse 20, and of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell. He's rehearsing here what he saw. Even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. Verse 21, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints, and prevailed against them. Verse 22, until the ancient of days came. And the judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. So here he rehearsed it. I need a little more detail about that fourth beast. There's too many details there. And I need to know something about. So the interpreter guy helps him out a little further. Verse 23, look what he says. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all the kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. Remember, the fourth beast is the ancient Rome. Rome was stronger. It was more destructive. It also had a longer reign than all the other kingdoms. It was the world power from 150 B.C. all the way to 500 A.D. But as the vision of Daniel goes, we realize something. God is not just giving Daniel a vision of ancient Rome. There's obviously another version of Rome that is still yet to come. When we see history, we see everything that's come together, we, it, this, this dream, this vision that Daniel has had is not completed yet. It's not done. And that's what's coming next here in this interpretation. Bible teachers call what we're about to see the revived Roman Empire that's going to come in the, during the tribulation. And here are the details, verse 24. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. There will be ten kings that will arise. And another shall arise after them. That's an eleventh. And he shall be diverse from the first. Those are the ten. And he will subdue three of the kings. So that never took place in ancient Rome. That never happened. So that is obviously still yet to come. So somehow this revived Roman Empire... Will be uh, somehow comprised of ten united kings, kings from all uh, places of the world will come together. But then there's, there will be another king that will arise and represented by that little horn, and that will be the Antichrist. And he will put down three of those ten and he'll rule the other seven. And the book of Revelation doesn't specifically record the part of the one horn bringing down the three horns, but it does speak of the ten horns. Daniel, John, both speak of the same thing. Look at Revelation chapter 17. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. A very short time. The beast is the Antichrist. Verse 13. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. John saw many of the same things that Daniel saw. In fact... As they say, you, you can only understand Daniel by reading Revelation. And you really can only st- understand the book of Revelation by reading the book of Daniel. And notice what the dominant horn does during this future revived empire. Verse 25, and he shall speak great words. This is the Antichrist. He shall speak great words against the Most High. That's God. And shall wear out the saints. Shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And think to change times and laws, and they shall be given unto his hand until a time and times and dividing of time. This little horn with a big old mouth will speak great words against the Most High. He will he will get a lot of people on his sides, on his side. But then he will persecute the saints. He will wear them out. And the point here is wearing them out is like wearing a wearing our clothes, or wearing out our shoes with a lot of friction. Here's what this means. It means the Antichrist is going to provide some serious persecution against the saints. And it's going to wear them down. It's going to wear them down. You see already some of that persecution happening against the people of God? Wearing them down. Wearing the saints down. And he will try to extend his reign by changing times and laws. But he will only have a time, it says, which equals one year. Times, that is two years. And a dividing of time, that is a half a year. Altogether, that's three and a half years. All that's referring to the second half of the tribulation. The second half after the church is already raptured out and those who get saved during the tribulation will face intense persecution. He will try to wear them out. He will wear them out. This is going to be a frightful time and that's why it's pictured as such a horrible beast, an ugly and disgusting beast that will do all sorts of horrible things. But remember... Those who put their trust in Christ never lose in the end, ever. Verse 26, But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away His dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. Meaning the the world's going to be in chaos during the tribulation. Fear's going to be running rampant on this earth, but judgment shall sit. Remember, the Ancient of Days is sitting. It's judgment time. God is sitting. He's not worried he takes action at just the right moment. And when he does, the Antichrist is destroyed forever. In verse 27, here's what, the, here's what the saints can expect. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Here's what I want everybody to hear this morning. Would you listen to me here? God will not leave any of His children to be destroyed by the devil not one the little child who has trusted Christ over in the hills in the mountains of Honduras or India or wherever that little precious child is that little precious child is going to get a mansion in the kingdom of God that child as a saint of God will rule and reign with King Jesus forever that is their glorious future That is our glorious future, yours and mine, if we put our trust in Jesus Christ. This is again why the gospel is so glorious. Jesus takes you, and the wrath will not touch that child. The wrath will not touch the the people of God. You have a kingdom and a dominion, and you're under Jesus forever and ever. In verse 28, hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations, I love that word, that means thoughts. My cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. See, the vision that he just saw visibly changed Daniel. These, and it should change us. Those future events should become so real that they are not only in our minds, but in our hearts. They should settle down deep in our hearts, the fact that Jesus is sitting on the throne. Jesus is going to bring all of this to judgment at one point. Everything we see, every beast, every wicked thing. We know in our mind that there's a great fight each day with the beasts of this world. But again, in our hearts, in our hearts, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. We're the children of the ancient of days. I close with this. During World War II, there was the Germans were very confident in the unbreakability of their Enigma code. They had a code that was unbreakable, they said. But British mathematicians and scientists cracked it uh, with the ultra system that they came up with. But once they cracked it, they had to keep secret how they were gaining all the German secrets. They couldn't just let on what they had done. For example, in 1941, uh, the, uh, the Britons de- decoded this whole plan of the German Air Force and the Italian Navy to assault British convoys in the Mediterranean Sea. The British ships then sent out, they set out their ships out from Alexandria and Egypt to meet that threat. But to keep the Germans from thinking that they had cracked the, the code, they sent a, a, flying, a Sunderland flying boat uh, on a reconnaissance, just kind of m- making it seem like, making the Germans think, oh, he was just on accident, happened to be flying in the area and saw it. That way, when the ships came, and, and that's exactly what happened, the Br- British fleet came and completely obliterated the Italian fleet. But um, they had to keep those codes, or the, the fact that they could crack the code, secret. It didn't mean they could just forget the war, but they had, it obviously gave them a huge morale booster that they knew beforehand every time something would happen. And that's what Daniel chapter 7, when you read something like this, or you read something in the book of Revelation, that's the mentality that we should have. We might be under the oppression of whatever. We might be under the oppression of some beast. We might be uh, there might be things going on in our hearts. But here's what God says. Here's what's going to happen in the future. I want you to know it. The King of Heaven has everything firmly in hand. Don't you worry. That doesn't eliminate all your suffering, but it does put your heart at ease. God's in control. I've got it all taken care of. Just calm down. <laughs> Just calm down. I've got it all. Father, we love You. We thank You.